May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. I thought that prayer uh, of the collect was very appropriate in light of the terrible news that we've heard this week. In our time, grant us your peace. Amen. Grant us your peace. And then the passage from Isaiah where it talks about people who are groping around in the dark and moaning because of injustice and transgression. And the problem is that people have denied the Lord. And so I thought about that as I heard the news about the attempted bombings and then the the news about the synagogue shooting. And uh, those are good places for us to start when it comes to our prayers as the people of God. That God would give us peace in this time and that God would turn people back from denying him to a place of repentance. May God use, uh, use those, these, these terrible things to, to wake people up, to search for light rather than continuing to grope in darkness. I didn't want to preach about that, but I did want to make a comment about that. The sermon I prepared is, uh, is based on our reading from the letter to the Hebrews. So I invite you to to look at that. And this is page nine in your bulletin in the Pew Bibles. I think it's page 1003, if I remember right. In this in this reading from the book of Hebrews, the author, we don't know, by the way, we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. So I'll just say the author as I go along here. But he has this wonderful verse here at the end of kind of a hard hitting passage where he says that the motivation for writing this way, as he says in verse 11, is so that they might have full assurance of hope until the very end. Full assurance of hope until the very end. And that's a wonderful goal. That is what Jesus wants us to have. That is what our Lord wants us to have. Full assurance of hope until the very end of our earthly journey. The Lord wants us to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, Verse one, or chapter one, verse twelve, Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy says, "I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced, convinced that he's able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. I know whom I have believed. That's assurance. I am convinced. That's confidence, and that's what the Lord wants us to have. And sometimes that's lacking." Among Christians, this assurance. For example, some people might might wonder as they contemplate the end of their life's journey, as they think about appearing before the judgment of God, how can I be sure that I'm right with God? How can I have this hope until the very end, until my last breath? We live in a culture of uh, skepticism and unbelief. How can we have full assurance of hope in such a climate? How can we resist this tide of unbelief? Oftentimes when people begin to talk to me about assurance and are wrestling with their own personal assurance, my, my go-to response, my go-to pastoral response is take your eyes off yourself and look to Christ. Now look to the cross of Christ and you can be assured that your sins are forgiven. 
Look to Christ's empty tomb and you can be assured that there is victory over death and the grave. And that's certainly appropriate. And the writer of Hebrews will go on in this letter to admonish people to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But at this point in the letter, he takes a different tact. He, he wants them to examine themselves. He wants them to look in the mirror. And I divided this passage up into an exhortation. He gives an exhortation here. Then he gives a stern warning. And then he concludes, thankfully, with encouragement. So we'll look at the exhortation, the warning, and then in conclusion, the encouragement. The exhortation is that they need to be striving to grow. They need to be striving to grow in their understanding of Christ, in their relationship with Christ. He says in verse 11, about this we have much to say. Now he's been talking about the priesthood of Christ. And if you read the previous verses, it's pretty heady stuff that he's talking about when it comes to the priesthood of Christ. And it's not so much that the material is difficult, he says, but your hearing has become dull. You're not interested in the deeper things of Christ. There's no drive to grow and to mature in understanding these deeper things of Christ. And so he says, I want you to, to strive towards maturity. At this point in your life, he says, you, you ought to be able to teach other people. But you need, need, need people to, to teach you the very basics of the faith. So you should be in graduate school, but you're still in Christianity 101 and you need people to teach you Christianity 101. You haven't made a lot of progress. And part of the problem is you're not motivated to learn. You've become dull of hearing. And he says you're like infants who can only handle milk. You should be like adults who can handle meat and appreciate the rich meat of God's word. And so he says in, in, in verse one of chapter six, so let us, now he's including himself because we all need to grow. Let us move on from the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And then he continues on with a list, which I'm not going to be able to, to exposit here, but this list of sort of elementary teachings. These are kind of entry-level curriculum that they would be expected to understand as Christians. Maybe it was part of a, a catechesis process. When you came into the church, these are the things we want you to know. He says, now that's the foundation. Let's not keep going back to that. We don't leave the foundation behind. We don't leave the basic truths of Christianity behind, but we build on the foundation. So he says, there's more for you to learn. There's more for you to hear about. There's more for you to know. So let's move on. Let's grow together. Let's aim for maturity. And there's a principle here. There's a, a basic principle of life that crosses many fields of learning and experience. And we all know it. And that is what you invest in, what you put energy into, the more you do that, the more you will appreciate it. 
The more you put in, the more you get out. Simple, kind of silly example. It's football season. I'm a casual fan of football, okay? I don't sit down usually and watch an entire game. My son, on the other hand, is not a casual fan of football. He knows the sport better than I do at this point. But there are people who invest time and energy into learning about the game of football. They watch a lot of it. They understand strategy, offensive schemes, defensive schemes. They play fantasy football. They're invested into it, okay? And when they watch a game, they see a lot more than I do, the casual fan. They get more out of it. They appreciate it more. You could take an example of art, for example. A person who's studied art or taken art class, generally speaking, is going to have a richer experience in an art museum than somebody who's never taken an art class and has never taken time to study or appreciate art. So you get more out of it the more you put into it. Same thing, same thing when it comes to the Christian life and Christian growth. God does not call us to be passive. God calls us to pursue him. To exert effort. Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow gate. Luke 12, 24. Strive to enter the narrow, narrow gate. So I think sometimes, not all the time, hear me, not all the time, but sometimes the reason why we lack assurance, the reason why our faith grows weak, the reason why our confidence begins to flag, is that we have stopped striving to grow. We have stopped aiming for maturity. We've gotten to a settled point, and we're fine with that, but we don't want to grow deeper. I've seen that in my own life. When I'm not seeking to grow in prayer, when I'm not seeking to understand in a, in a, in a fuller way God's Word, when I'm not seeking to apply that to my life, when I just want to go through the motions, when I'm not stopping to really understand what we believe and why we believe it, my appetite for spiritual things can grow weak and my faith begins to get duller. What about you? Are you striving to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you satisfied with where you're at? Are you honest with yourself and said, I, I need to know more. I can know more. There is more for me to know, more for me to learn, places I need to grow. Understand that that is God calling you to grow to maturity. And this is a process that doesn't end until we get home, until we get to heaven. So that's the exhortation. Don't be satisfied with where you're at. Pursue growth, pursue maturity. And then he gives this stern warning. Now, this is a fun passage to preach on. As I studied this passage, uh, several commentators said this is the most controversial passage in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Christians divide over how to understand this. One commentator said this might be one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. So um, lucky me. And because it is controversial and difficult, I think we can approach this cautiously. And I approach it cautiously and not dogmatically. 
But what the author here is saying in verses 4 through 6 is he is warning against falling away or apostasy. He's warning against apostasy. He says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, apostasy is not growing cold in your faith. It's not he's not talking about falling away for a season. He's not talking about getting lazy in your faith. He's not talking about struggling with sin. Apostasy is a decisive turning away from Christ. And you have to remember the context here. He's writing to people who are facing persecution and there would be a lot of pressure and a lot of benefit for them socially to publicly renounce Christ. That's what he's warning against. Not struggling, not growing cold, not sort of slipping in and out, but decisively rejecting not just the faith, but rejecting the person, Jesus Christ. He says it's, it's crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So that's the warning here. It's against apostasy. It's against going down that road. Now, the controversy comes in when when we ask, is he talking here about true Christians? Is it possible for genuine Christians to finally, fully fall away? And some people will say, yes, the the description here in verses four through six, this is a, a description of genuine salvation. So it's possible, they would say, for genuine Christians to fall away, to commit this apostasy. Other people say, well, that conflicts with what we read in other passages of Scripture, which teach us that our salvation is secure, kept secure by the power of God. So, for example, Jesus says in John 10, 28, this is a key passage on this question. Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. And then he says this, I will give them my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They will never perish. That's put very emphatically. It's like, no, not never. They will not perish my sheep who come to me. Okay. So that seems to rule out the idea that his sheep could fall away. They will never perish. So here's the question. How do we relate that teaching? Jesus' words there in other places, they will not fall away with Hebrews, which says, I'm warning here, don't fall away. How do we relate these two things? I think a key verse here is verse nine. Look at verse nine. Though we speak in this way about apostasy, the possibility of that, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure or this could be translated. We are confident of better things. Things that belong not to apostasy. But to salvation. 
So it's a bit of a paradox here, but this is the way I deal with this passage. He's saying you could fall away, but I'm confident you won't fall away because God is at work in you by his grace to help you endure to the end. Could fall away, but you're not going to. I'm confident that you will not fall away if you heed this warning. God is at work in you. How is God at work in them? By giving them this warning. By giving them this warning. God's warning about falling away is one of the means by which he enables his people, his sheep, to persevere. Okay, so here's, here's an illustration that might be helpful to you. This comes from Millard Erickson in his book on Christian theology. He says, think about parents who, this kind of hits home for us, think about parents who are living by a busy street and they're worried that their child is going to go into the busy street and get hurt. <laughs> this is a, this hits, like I said, it's pretty close to home for us. Now, the parent could build like a fortress around the yard, a, 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 an enormous gate that the, the child could never escape from, could never go over or through. But then that would obviously inhibit the child's freedom. Or the parent could do this. The parent could teach the child, appeal to the child's heart and mind about the danger of the street and the importance of being careful and over and over again warn about the street. And Erickson says, I think that's a helpful way of thinking about the relationship between our security in God and the risk of apostasy. Apostasy could happen, running into the street could happen, but God, through his warnings of his people, is in enabling his people to persevere. It's a real warning. The danger of falling away is real. So we really have to be vigilant and not passive in our faith. But the call to vigilance and the warning is the means that God uses to preserve his people in the faith. Another illustration, again, this is not original with me, but we can all relate to this. You know, you're driving at night on a busy highway in the middle of the night. Now, you're confident that you're going to get to the destination that you've set out for. But in order to get there, you know that you have to stay awake. You have to be alert. You have to be vigilant. So you drink coffee, lots of coffee and caffeine. Well, at least I do. And your wife pinches you. At least my wife does to keep you awake so that you will be vigilant. You're confident that you're going to get to where you go. But vigilance is the means to accomplish getting there. And in the same way. God's warning in Scripture, his call for us to press on are the means that he uses to ensure that his people will arrive safely home. That's how I make sense of these passages. Again, it's controversial. Other people might have different interpretations. That's okay. In Anglicanism, we can be roomy on these sorts of issues. There's some room here. But I want to end on some practical application. I don't think there's a lot of controversy about what I'm about to say here. Okay. So to the person who is not striving to grow in Christ, to the person who is satisfied with where they're at now, or to the one who is wandering from Christ, the call here is to heed this warning. To understand that this warning is something God is giving to you even here and now to get you back on the right path. 
In our gospel reading, blind Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. And he found that Christ was merciful. If you turn to Christ in honest repentance and faith, you will find a merciful Savior and he will restore you. And he is the good shepherd that reaches out to his sheep and gets them back into the fold. He's done that in my life. He's done that in many of our lives. And so if you're wandering from the Lord or complacent this morning, heed the warning and turn to Jesus. And then there's encouragement at the end of this passage. And I'm, again, glad we can end on encouragement because this has been pretty tough. And this is coming from a place of love. The writer is writing from a place of love, but it's it's kind of tough love. And he encourages the people at the very end here. In verse 10, he says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Yes, you're starting to slack off. You're going down a dangerous path, he's saying. But then he kind of backs away from this sternness and he says, but I see God at work in you. I see the way that you're loving other people in his name. That's evidence that God's salvation lives in us as we love one another. That gives us assurance that God is at work in us if we have love for one another. John is very clear. Apostle John in his epistles about that. So the author is saying, I I see this and God sees it. God sees your work and your love for one another. God sees the Sunday school teacher. God sees the nursery worker. God sees the counselor. God sees your prayers for other people. He sees the time that you put in. He, 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 he knows about the, the talent that you're using for him, the financial support that you're giving. He, he knows about the gifts that you give and the cards that you send and the meals that you make. He sees it. Be encouraged. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, I know God is at work in you. I'm warning you here, but I know that God is at work in you. I'm encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. And I want you to apply that same diligence that you have in loving one another to growing in Christ. That same energy and effort that you have in loving one another, put that into growing in Christ, in maturity. Why? So your assurance will grow. So your confidence will grow. And so you have hope to the very, very end of this journey. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's consider where we're at in our journey with Christ. Let's consider how we might press on to maturity. Lord, we do want to grow in you as a as a community, as individuals. I pray for each person here that you would stir in all of our hearts uh, a desire to grow and to become more like you. To know more about you, to understand in a deeper way the things of our faith so that we can grow in confidence and assurance. So that. Not only for our good, but for the sake of others, for fruitfulness in your kingdom. We can be people of hope and confidence 
in a hopeless world that's often given to despair. The world needs Christians who are strong. We've seen that this week. Who can present another way of living in this dark world. So help us to be that kind of community. Help us to be those kind of people. And we thank you for your goodness and grace, your mercy in reaching out to us. We thank you, God, for the warnings here and the encouragement. Help us to to take these things into our life and think about them today and throughout the week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.